Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Well, today I want to talk with you about trinities. I know you're getting nervous. Trinities. You're probably thinking, now, Mr. President, there's only one trinity. You got to get that right. No, I want to talk to you today about trinities. Now, I know you're nervous because once before I had a situation where a similar thing was said to me and it made me nervous. One of our faculty members, Dr. Rick Durst, wrote a book entitled Reordering the Trinity. And when I saw the title, I thought, oh my goodness, what have we done now? Reordering the Trinity. But actually, it's a fascinating book. It's a study of the ways that the Trinity is, excuse me, it's it's a fascinating book. It's the study of the ways that the names of God are ordered in the New Testament. God, Son, Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. It's a way that the names of God are ordered in the New Testament. Father, Son, Spirit. Son, Father, Spirit. Spirit, Son, Father. You get the idea. So, after I read the book, I felt a lot better about the title, Reordering the Trinity. Now, I hope after you hear the rest of this podcast, you'll understand what I mean when I say I want to talk about trinities, and you'll feel the same way. First, of course, there is the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity as we normally think of using the word, and I don't want to talk about that today. Second, there is a second kind of Trinity in the New Testament, and that's a Trinity of Christian graces. For example, a passage says, there is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And throughout the New Testament, faith, hope, and love are linked together and are described as sort of a trinity, if you will, of Christian graces. I don't want to talk about that either today. Instead, I want to talk about a third trinity. I want to talk about the unholy trinity of leadership downfall. Now, this was brought to my mind again because recently a very prominent Christian leader uh, here in the United States was removed from his position by his board and has been set aside because of some inappropriate behavior that was uh, publicized through various media. Another leader has fallen. Now, the purpose of this podcast is not to cast stones at a fallen leader. It's to challenge every one of us to double down on what we must do to make sure that we're not the next person that's removed from office because of something we did that was inappropriate and cost us our leadership role. The unholy trinity of leadership downfall. Those three words are money, sex, and power. Now, these three words, money, sex, and power, are linked together in various ways throughout the Bible. First of all, when you read the book of Proverbs and the rest of the wisdom literature, you'll see frequent warnings to people in leadership positions about money, sex, and power, prevalent through the wisdom literature. When you get to the New Testament, 
You can find examples of leaders succumbing to the temptations in all three of these areas, but they're linked together also in some specific teaching passages like 1 John 2.16, which warns us against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. Money, sex, and power. Now, I was recently reading the book of Deuteronomy in my devotions, and I came once again across Deuteronomy 17, 16 through 20. Now, this is an important passage of Scripture for me because I actually have this passage uh, in a plaque framed by my computer monitor. My wife gave it to me a number of years ago as an important reminder to me and a daily reminder as I see it of my responsibility to stay on guard in these three key areas, money, sex, and power. So let's hear what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 16. Speaking to leaders, the Bible says, However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver or gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or the left. And he and his sons will continue ruling over Israel many years. This passage of scripture speaks uh, with three warnings related to money, sex, and power when it speaks about horses, wives, and silver and gold. Now in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Daniel Block makes this observation. He says, the text does not prohibit the purchase of horses or marriage or the accumulation of some silver and gold. The threefold repetition of for himself emphasizes the ban concerning the king's exploitation of his office for personal gain. Did you pick up on that Trinitarian mention of that phrase of himself? Many horses for himself, many wives for himself, gold and silver for himself. The emphasis in this passage is not telling us that leaders must take vows of poverty, live celibate lives, and deny any spiritual authority or power. That's not what the passage is saying. The passage is actually saying that it's permissible for leaders to have money, sex, and power, but they must be careful that they do not misuse these things for themselves, making them a source of of self-exaltation and self-gratification. So let's talk about each one of these in a little more detail. The passage begins by warning us to not acquire many horses or send people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. Now in this context, the horse is a symbol of military power. In that day and age, mounted soldiers are chariot-driven soldiers Uh, chariot-carried soldiers, I should say, uh, were a formidable fighting force. And so, having horses was a symbol of power. 
And the passage warns two things. Don't send people back to Egypt and don't get many horses for yourself. Now, as I try to update this for our generation and talk about what it means in our context, I'll give you two applications. First, don't go back to Egypt. Application, don't acquire power from inappropriate sources. Don't be a schemer, a conniver. Don't work the angles. Don't try to control information and circumstances and money and relationships in inappropriate ways to give you more power or more influence or more authority. Don't acquire power from inappropriate sources. And then the second warning, don't send people back to Egypt. In other words, don't use people, or I would say it this way, don't misuse people to amass inappropriate power. Now, one of the ways that leaders sometimes abuse people to gain power is by capriciously relating to them in their employment context, by firing them, or if not that, by uh, verbally abusing them, or by withholding monetary gain, or by some other means trying to control them in a way that diminishes their value and their autonomy and instead makes you look stronger. Now, there's a great example of how you need to avoid this uh, in the Bible. One of my favorite stories, and you've heard me teach on this if you've ever heard me teach my lessons on dealing with criticism, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is when King David was fleeing for his life, Absalom had taken his throne. Uh, A fellow named Shimei shows up and is extremely critical of David. In fact, beyond critical, he throws, uh, hurls uh, insults and invectives down on him from a ridgeline while David is riding away. And then he walks along and pelts David and his traveling party with sticks and rocks. So this was a horrible personal attack. Well, a little bit of time passes and David regains his kingdom. Now he's crossing the Jordan River, coming back into his uh, rule, so to speak, when Shimei comes down to the river and begs for his forgiveness. This begging is in 2 Samuel 19. Uh, The passage in 2 Samuel 19, we'll pick it up with this exchange. Abishai, one of David's warriors, says, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for what he's done because he cursed the Lord's anointed? I mean, Shimei is on his knees begging for forgiveness, and Abishai says, I'm not buying it. Let me take off his head, David. And David answered, Sons of Zeruiah, do we agree on anything today? Have you become my adversary today? In other words, come on, Shimei, we're on the same side here. Or excuse me, Abishai, we're on the same side here. And then David asked these questions. Should any man be killed in Israel today? And then this great question, am I not aware that today I'm king over Israel? What is David saying by these questions? Should anyone die today and am I not aware I'm king? David is saying this, I'm the king. I don't have to prove it to anybody. And I don't have to crush anyone to make myself look good. 
and I don't have to kill this whiner to demonstrate my power. You know, as a leader today, uh, you're going to get attacked by a lot of different people. And the temptation is to try to fight back, to get even, and when you can, to crush them, to humiliate them, to make them look bad, to on social media have hundreds of people joining you and embarrassing them for what they've said to you. David would say, why are you doing that? If you're really a leader, do you have to prove it every day by crushing other people, by making other people look bad so you'll look good, by doing things that lift you up at the expense of others? So this passage begins by warning against the inappropriate use of power. It says, don't, get, don't go to inappropriate places for power. Don't get horses from Egypt. And don't send people out there to do that dirty work for you and misuse them in such a way that it only gains you more power and authority. And remember what David said. Am I not king over Israel today? Do I need anything to prove that I'm really the king? Do I need to harm some other person to make me look good? The answers, of course, are no. So, be on guard against the misuse of power. Then second, the second uh, passage, uh, part of the passage says, he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. Now, in the context, the main warnings about not gaining more wives were really against two things that were prevalent and that were a great concern to the people of Israel about their leader. Uh, the first thing was that when a king took many wives, it was an opportunity for idolatry to enter into his life. Because quite often, uh, these wives brought with them their gods and insisted that they retain their worship, and that was an opportunity for the king to be led astray. So idolatry was one of the risks of taking too many wives. A second issue was warning against inappropriate political alliances. Now, back in that day, women were treated more like property, and they were traded among men to cement political alliances. And so this warning is not so much a, a warning against immorality, although we're going to get to that in a moment. It's a warning about using intimate relationships inappropriately. And in this context, it was using intimate relationships as a vehicle for idolatry and using intimate relationships to inappropriately create political alliances. Now, today, most leaders are not involved in marriages that do these things. But nevertheless, the warning is still important. We are warned to, to be careful how we treat intimate relationships. And particularly, in this context, we're warned to not allow intimate relationships to become self-serving. You see, that's what's at the root of idolatry and political alliances. It's using marriage in this context of Deuteronomy to cement these things and to uh, be self-serving. In our context, uh, the application is different. It's not using 
uh, intimate misusing intimate relationships to create uh, idolatry or political alliances, but it's instead misusing intimate relationships so that they become self-serving rather than an opportunity to serve others. What do I mean? Well, when I've dealt with people who've been caught in adultery or who've been guilty of adultery, and you talk with them about how did this happen and when did it begin and what need were you trying to satisfy, it almost always comes back to a self-serving need for gratification, for pleasure, for satisfaction, and sometimes for power. In other words, adultery is not first about the sex. It's first about something much deeper, and that is being self-serving. This is also what's at the root of the misuse of pornography. Pornography is self-serving. It's you viewing someone else's sexual activity or someone else's erotic activity in such a way that it stimulates you and that you are titillated by it and you're self-served by what you see. Voyeurism is the same problem. Uh, you go to a strip club or some other kind of voyeuristic activity and you watch people behaving inappropriately, immorally, uh, uh, erotically, and you are stimulated by that, it's self-serving. Intimate relationships are supposed to be built on self-giving. Uh, the Bible is very clear about this, especially in the marriage relationship, that men and women in those relationships do not, ex do not enter those relationships for what they can get out of them. They enter those relationships for what they can give to them. And so my responsibility with my wife is not to have an intimate relationship with her that is primarily self-serving. It's to have an intimate relationship with her in which I am primarily self-giving so that I am working hard to meet her needs, uh, to um, provide the kind of intimacy that is important in her life, not just the kind of intimacy that I want to get for myself. Now, this is rooted deeply in the Christian ethic of being self-sacrificing and of valuing others higher than we value ourselves and of giving ourselves away in order that we might get in return what we need out of a relationship or a situation. So, this warning in this text is about getting too many wives. And really, it's a warning about uh, idolatry and political alliances. But the application is, in our culture, don't be self-serving in intimate relationships. If you're involved in an intimate relationship or you're tracking toward one that's inappropriate and you know it, you're doing that because you're trying to get something out of it. Self-serving. I'll also go on to say, you know, this is what's at the root of being involved inappropriately with uh, people in sexual abuse situations. When an adult is involved with a child in any kind of se sexual situation, uh, that is extreme, an extreme example of being self-serving in an intimate relationship. And I know adults delude themselves into thinking that children or teenagers want this kind of relationship or are some way uh, uh, equally responsible for entering into it, but that is simply not the case. And so the Bible warns us as leaders about using intimate relationships in any capacity because they're self-serving. Be careful about this. And then number three, the Bible says... We're not supposed to acquire very large amounts of silver or gold. Now, again, as I said from the beginning, 
There's not anything wrong with having some silver or gold. But this passage warns against very large amounts and amassed, again, remember that phrase, for himself. Now, what's the application here? The application is leaders must practice self-restraint when it comes to finances, resources, money. We must practice self-restraint. Now, the more leadership responsibility you have, typically, the more access you have to uh, financial resources, to money, and the more money you're paid. Now, that's just the way our, our culture, particularly American culture, works. So, when you're the pastor of a small church, you have a certain kind of budget and you're able to lead that. But as you get to a larger church or a greater ministry responsibility, you may find yourself responsible for large amounts of money. You know, here at Gateway Seminary, we have about a $12 million budget and a $70 million endowment, and I'm responsible for that on a daily basis. And I have great latitude in how I use that money. Uh, I can allocate it for whatever I think it needs to be spent on to advance our, our causes. And I can put as much or as little as I want to in the president's office. And I have to constantly work on self-restraint and then missional restraint, and that's another podcast, to make sure that we're allocating our resources for the mission and not to make me more comfortable or to make me look good. Now, on a personal basis... I want to talk with you about what it means to practice self-restraint when it comes to finances, resources, money in your life. First, practicing self-restraint means that you are disciplined to live below your means. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, that's easy for you to say because you're a seminary president and you get a nice salary and you're at the end of your career and you've been... Uh, living a certain way uh, without children, and you can have more money. I I get all that. I get all that. I know it would be easy for you to dismiss what I'm saying because of who's saying it. But I want to remind you that I wasn't always a seminary president. Uh, I was a young married couple with my wife, Anne, living on a very modest salary in a very small church. And then I went to Portland, Oregon, and planted a church. Now, there's a way to get rich. Yeah, move to Portland, Oregon, and plant a church. There's a big salary waiting for you there. And then I was a state executive in a small state convention, and frankly, uh, I was paid uh, commiserately to what I should have been paid, but I was paid at the uh, lower level of what state conventions pay because we were a smaller state out here in the West. So I understand what it means to live on less. But my wife and I made a decision when we got married that we were going to live within our means. And we have done that for 40 years. And that has been sometimes disheartening because we've had to say no to things that we really wanted to do. Uh, It's been difficult to explain to our children sometimes when we couldn't do things that other families were able to do because we just didn't have the money. Uh, It was challenging because I watched other men that were my peers that were in business or in law or in medicine making a lot more money than I was making. And I remember sometimes thinking, well, I'm as smart as they are, and I've got as much education as they do, and I work as hard as they do, and I think I do something as important as what they do. Why don't I get any money for it? So I know those pressures. I know the, dis- the difficulty of it. I know the disappointment of it. I know the personal ego challenge of making the decision to live below your means. But living below your means simply is a decision or simply is a commitment that you're not going to go into debt, uh, that you're going to pay your own way, and that you're going to live at whatever level God allows. That's hard. 
but it's one of the ways you can practice self-restraint as a leader. To say, I know that I may not have as much as other people in my church. I may not have as much as the pastor at the church down the street. I may not have as much as other people in my own family. But I'm going to make the decision that I'm going to live within my means. And whatever God provides me, I'm going to live just a little bit below that. Now, this runs counter to everything about American culture. Uh, in American culture, we're told get credit cards and charge them up and build up your credit rating and pay those credit cards off in a systematic way and uh, just stay a little bit ahead of the game and you'll be fine. I read a survey uh, recently that people were asked, how much more money do you think you really need to be happy? And it didn't matter how much money they made, whether they made a little bit or a lot, the consistent answer across the board was about 10% more than they had. So in American culture, we want more than we have, and we're told to spend more than we make, and somehow in the long run, uh, that's going to make us happy. Well, it doesn't. As a leader, you have a responsibility to demonstrate leadership restraint, to live a little bit below your means. Now, this has so many positive implications and applications. Your followers will respect you more for it. Uh, they will see you modeling something that they desperately know they need to be doing as well. And when difficult times come like the pandemic, you'll have a little bit of a cushion built into your plan so that you won't be immediately thrown into crisis. Now, you may get into crisis, but it'll not be immediate because you have some cushion built into your plan. So one way to not amass silver and gold, as the passage warns, is to practice self-restraint by living below your means. And another important step for you is to practice self-restraint by being a generous donor. Now, the sad reality is uh, many Christian leaders do not give generously of their resources. And they justify it by saying, well, I give my time, or well, I'm not paid very much, or I'm just struggling to make ends meet. Well, that's no excuse for not being a generous giver. Now, I realize that tithing is controversial for some. I have zero reason why, and I'm going to talk about that on another podcast soon. But my wife and I made a decision when we got married 40 years ago that we would never give less than a tithe of Christian, to Christian work. So the first month we were married, we gave a little bit more than a tithe, and we've been increasing that over the years until now we're giving substantially more than 10% of our income away every month. Now, we do that for a number of reasons, but one, because it does demonstrate self-restraint. We also do it because we want our organization that we serve to know that we are invested financially in what we're trying to accomplish. We also do it because we know we have a responsibility to train up to challenge others to give. Uh, and when I am able to say that I'm a generous donor, I can freely challenge others to join me in that responsibility. So we do it because we practice self-restraint, and we do it because we're committed to our mission, and we do it because it gives us an authority, a moral authority, to ask other people to give generously to what we're doing. But we also do it, and I guess this is a bit selfish, but we also give generously because the Bible promises that God rewards a cheerful giver. And my wife and I have a hundred testimonies we could give about God's faithfulness to take care of us because we have given generously. He has poured resources, blessing, and protection into our lives. It's been an amazing journey in that regard. Well, 
Today we're talking about trinities. Of course, there is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's the Trinity of Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. But there is also, unfortunately, the unholy Trinity of leadership downfall, money, sex, and power. The Bible does not prohibit leaders from having power. The Bible does not prohibit us from being married. The Bible does not say we can't have some financial resources. But the Bible has warnings in the Old Testament, the wisdom literature, the Gospels, and all through the teaching letters. The Bible has warning. Leaders, be on guard. Money, sex, power. Don't let these three things trip you up. Be on guard daily. I don't want one of my podcast listeners to be the next leader that I learn has been removed from their responsibility because of downfall in one of these three key areas. You're never too young. You're never too old. You're never too experienced. You're never too inexperienced. You're never too rich. You're never too poor that these temptations go away in our lives. So I'm challenging you today, be on guard in the areas of money, sex, and power. Use these areas of life appropriately as a Christian leader and as a model of leadership so that you can be sustained over a lifetime as you lead on.